This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, Poetry Editor of the New Yorker Magazine. On this program, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read one of their own poems from the magazine. Today, my guest is Diane Mehta, the author of the poetry collection Forest with Castanets and the forthcoming Tiny Extravaganzas, and the recipient of the Peter Heineg Literary Award, as well as grants and fellowships from the Cafe Royal Cultural Foundation, Civitella Ranieri, and Yado. Diane, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Great to have you. So the first poem you've chosen to read is The Lost Art of Letter Writing by Evan Boland. What drew you to this particular poem while you're perusing the archives? Well, first of all, she has a great ear. It's masterfully paced. And I love the very unwelcoming ratio in the beginning, which <laughs> makes you not want to keep going. But if you, if you do, it's very satisfying. Okay. Let's listen to the poem. This is Diane Mehta reading The Lost Art of Letter Writing by Van Boland. The Lost Art of Letter Writing. The ratio of daylight to handwriting was the same as lace making to eyesight. The paper was so thin it skinned air. The hand was fire and the page tinder. Everything burned away except the one place they singled out between fingers held over a letter pad they set aside for the long evenings of their leave-takings, always asking after what they kept losing, always performing, even when a shadow fell across the page and they knew the answer was not forthcoming, the same action. First, the leaning down, the pen becoming a staff to walk fields with as they vanished underfoot into memory. Then, the letting up, the lighter stroke, which brought back Cranesbill and Thistle, a bicycle wheel rusting, an iron circle hurting the grass again, and the hedges veiled in hawthorn again, just in time for the main novenas recited in sweet air on a road leading to another road. Then another one, widening to a motorway with four lanes, ending in a new town on the edge of a city they will never see. And if we say an art is lost when it no longer knows how to teach a sorrow to speak, come, 
see the way we lost it. Stacking letters in the attic, going downstairs, so as not to listen to the fields stirring at night as they became memory, and in the morning as they became ink. What we did so as not to hear them whispering, the only question they knew by heart, the only one they learned from all those epistles of air and unreachable distance, how to ask, is it still there? That was The Lost Art of Letter Writing by Van Boland, which was published in the August 25th, 2014 issue of The New Yorker. I love hearing you read that poem. And what I love about this poem, too, is it's about memory and forgetting. It's about sort of conjuring the past, but also this lost art, obviously. Um, And this terrific part where she says, and if we say an art is lost when it no longer knows how to teach a sorrow to speak, come see Wow, what an amazing set of lines. How do you take that? What does she mean by this, when it no longer knows how to teach a sorrow to speak? I thought that was the most marvelous moment in the poem. So it's almost like she gives away the whole idea in the title, right? The lost art of letter writing. So you have this letter writing, but she's saying this is about art. And so right from the beginning to this moment when she says an art is lost and then sort of repeats that phrase, I feel like she's saying, do not lose your art. We have lost so much. This poem is about writing letters, immigrants writing letters back to Ireland and missing Ireland and about immigration and collective longing. And then she's saying, and art is lost just the way you feel lost. And here's a poem that is parading as a letter but telling us about loss. Right. With this reaching out to the reader to come into the letter. And then she says, literally, come, come, come join me. Right. Well, there's a movement in the poem that's very subtle, but hearing you read it uh, struck me, which is that it starts with this kind of they, you know, the they that is writing letters. They singled out between fingers, held over a letter pad, they set aside, these these distant folks who, who did this writing. But then suddenly it's how we lost it. And I think that's a really significant shift in the poem. And how we lost it is sort of the everyday forgetting one does, you know, working in archives and museums, you sort of see the ways that it's both a repository here, stacking letters in the attic, but also a more metaphysical loss going downstairs so as not to listen to the field stirring at night. Right. You must be listening to these voices all the time as you're going through things yourself. You can hear the voices in here. I I noticed the same shift. And and it feels like this is, to me, and maybe this is a stretch, but it felt a bit like it turned into a feminist poem in the best possible way because she's talking about other people and she's representing them. It's a collective loss. And then she is, is representing it through her experience as well, but also through the lens of what kind of poetry she wrote and the domestic work that she put in her poems and her writing as a woman with people like Yeats and Beckett and Don Montague and Paul Muldoon before her. So she has a lot to contend with and it's a way of her making it 
hers and making this whole work of immigration and the work of letter writing and the work of art something that she as a woman is embodying rather than just one part of. Yeah, and I, I think it's also uh, about art, isn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, isn't she, isn't this a kind of Ars Poetica poem about poetry? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing too, and I kept thinking, is it, is it, um, or is it just a <laughs> metaphor? But it is. It is. It's really about poetry, and it's about don't let it go and and look, look. And she's, it's magnificent the way she's rolling through it, right? So it's almost as mm. if it's a letter. You have these alliterative three-line tercets, and they're going, and they're going the way the letter is going. And then she has these moments where she repeats things, like the word air. And then I Mm -hmm. almost see the air between Ireland, between America, and the air of the space around the words, the page. But it does very much also, I agree, feel like it's about art and what art takes and what you have to bear in order to create it. So you have to include your loss and all the pain, and um, it is a kind of place of exile. Well, I love that last phrase you used because that exile comes across as, in the last lines, of course, is it still there? And the it, you know, one wonders, what does she mean by this it? Right, it's beautiful. So it becomes Ireland. Ireland is a poem. Um, and and you have all these places. You have the poem that's produced, the Ireland that becomes a more contemporary Ireland, these towns that these people will never get to see. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's her way of asking, are you fully aware of what you're doing now? You are actually making art. Are you aware that the point of all this is to actually be inside the art, the way you're inside a letter? So then it goes back into the letter writing, at least for Mm -hmm. me. Sure. I think there's also a way in which it does this trick that I think is hard to do that I think a letter both does, which is a letter has this kind of time and place it's stamped with that, right? It's of its time. It's of its place. And it's going to another place, though, that it's also imagined. It has to have a kind of destination, or at least that's how I think of it. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. And we're also that destination. So this poem, as all poems do, they're going across the centuries, and someone is discovering it. I discovered it in the archive. I care about her. I care about what she cares about. And I imagine this place that she lost and will forever imagine. Well, and I think there's a there's a twinning that I see. It occurs when the repetition you mentioned where she says always twice and she says again twice. And right. it's between sort of always and again. Like there's a kind of permanence but also this kind of repetition that I think is something of life um, while, of course, the whole poem is about life's fleeting nature in some way. But I started thinking while you were talking about um, thinking about the way that a letter writing maybe mirrors poetry writing. But there's also a way in which, you know, like a like a letter, a poem reaches us maybe later, as you mentioned. It travels. It has this distance. And one of the things I love is she mentions this again, an iron circle hurting the grass. What a great verb. Again. And the hedges veiled in hawthorn. Again. And then she says, just in time for the May novenas, which is almost the only moment you know sort of where a little bit it is. I mean, you're speaking because you know, I think, where she's from and where she's writing of. But it's not necessarily clear from the outside, I would think. You know, it feels in this way 
um, reaching beyond itself, though grounded, of course, like a letter is. All this is to say, do you think it has a prayer-like quality? Is it a novena? Oh, goodness. I was going to ask you if it, if you thought it had a prayer-like quality. Cause I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I got it thinking, at first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been thinking so much about this. And I was thinking very hard because I thought, you know, a novena is a prayer, and I think it's in the spring. I know she's from Dublin. I, I, I'm a big fan of the metaphysical poets. And so I was thinking that this poem feels not only like a letter, but like a prayer. And in the same way that the poets I love most are also writing something that has to do with dialogue, like John Donne and his Holy Sonnets, or George Herbert in his literal prayer to God, and Hopkins begging God, please help me, help me. I'm He's desperate, right? So all these are prayers, and they're so incredibly effective because they're a conversation and they're part of a dialogue. Mm. So that's what hit me about it, that in the sense that it was a prayer. Well, it ends with this question, and those epistles of air, an unreachable distance. I mean, that does have a prayer-like sense. How to ask? It isn't saying asking, which I think is is subtle but slightly different. You know, yeah. is it still there? Isn't even necessarily articulated by the letter writer. It's that's the urge beneath all of the letter writing. Yes, that's a device, a propulsive factor, right? You're wondering, is Ireland still there? Is is anybody still there? Is anyone hearing this? It's beautiful. And is the it, you know, the beloved? Is it God? Is it this unspeakable thing? Because the it is doing a lot of work there, for me at least. It is. It really is. And, and that is a strange ending when you think about it, just like her beginning is very strange. You're not sure where you are. In the beginning, you're also not sure where you are. You're in the middle of a ratio, and it really takes some while to <laughs> figure it out. So. But I love that opening. The ratio of daylight to handwriting was the same as lace making to eyesight. I mean, first of all, the rhymes, the little daylight, eyesight, handwriting, lace-making, that kind of ing sound, which goes throughout the beginning of the poem, even in things like fingers, leave-takings, losing, becoming, all those kind of gerunds and, and like sounds, you know, propulse you, as you put it. But I think there's also that, I don't know, that kind of dance that it's searching for a meaning that I think also the letter is. That the letter is also searching for meaning? Well, I feel like the beginning, you know, if she started us off telling us too much, I think we wouldn't have that searching quality that she also is writing about. Yeah, you're, I, th- I think you're right. It wouldn't be the same kind of poem. I mean, this makes it magnificent. I kept looking yeah. at this thinking, why is it so weird? And I thought it's almost as if, well, the ratio sits on top of each other and you have this thing broken into quadrants and you have daylight to handwriting. And I thought, okay, well, long ago, daylight is when you wrote letters and lace making lasted as long as your eyesight. And then all these things are about limits. And I thought, oh, this is really beautiful because there is a limit to everything. There's a limit to this letter. There's a limit to the day life and to your life within the cycle of life. But the handwriting, as you noted about archives, the handwriting, the archives, the paper, the lace, the object, those things remain. Well, and but the practice of it doesn't necessarily. People don't make as much lace <laughs> as they <laughs> might once have, uh, you know, just in their house. But I also think there's something about the intricacy of lace making. She could have picked other you know, domestic arts, as we, as you might say, to have the same metaphor. But instead, I think there's something about the intricacy of lace making, but also the intimacy. And I think that's what I get out of those lines is this 
mix of those things. I think you're right. And they also, you know, it strikes me that lace making, which is so delicate and it is intimate and often you have lace on undergarments, right? But you also have this lace in these places where you eat dinner and, but mm-hmm. it's also much more complicated than other kinds of sewing or weaving and you know, women's art or women's work was traditionally weaving. And so she made it something much more complex and intricate as if saying, I am no ordinary woman. I am no ordinary poet. I can be one um, with the greats. I can do something much more complex. And can you follow me? So in a way, it's a hard opening that's mm. unwelcoming. But it's also, if you keep reading, you think, can you follow me? Yes, I can follow you if I can get over this this beginning. <laughs> see, I see it as a bit more welcoming than you, but I, I take your point. <laughs> I think, I think in a way, it's grand, you know, and I think we're saying the same thing, but for me, that grandeur is part of what she's, you know, it announces itself. The lost art, you know, it's not about lace making in some smaller way. It's about lace making in the biggest sense possible. It it's is. about making yes. and, 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 yeah. and maintaining and, you know, death and loss. But the next stanza interests me, and, and I wonder about that before we move on. It says, the hand was fire and the page tinder. Everything burned away except the one break place they singled out between fingers. I mean, suddenly we're on fire, you know, this thing that endangers letters of all kinds. How do you take that danger that she conjures? Or is it danger? Is it transformation? What is that fire for us? Oh, that's so curious. I hadn't thought about either in terms of danger and transformation. I was so focused on just the act of writing and the kind of fierceness you need in order to continue writing and to get better as a writer and to be an immigrant and to tolerate the distance and the loneliness because it's a difficult move. It was back then a difficult move to go from Ireland to America. It's always a difficult move. But The idea of the hand being on fire and the page falling away just sort of smells to me of of more death, but not in a horrible way. More death, but Mm. you're doing something important. She's making Mm. a case. Well, maybe also um, resurrection, fire, sort of the phoenix kind of quality that I think is something of what she's, she's thinking about. For me... Even when a shadow fell across the page and they knew the answer was not forthcoming. So you're writing despite the knowing, the same action. And I think by turning letter writing not into like a habit or something, but an action, and then the action is not just leaning down the pen becoming, but it becomes a staff. It becomes bringing back Cranesville and Thistle, a bicycle wheel rusting. It's incredibly that powerful. Kind of, yeah, that kind of almost, you know, falling down the page with these dashes and, and colons that kind of go within each other. You know, you lose track a little bit, I think, in a good way of are we in the dashes? Are we past the colons? Like, it's just propelling us in that kind of Dickinsonian way. It's terrific. You just keep going and, and you, you lose yourself in it. So I feel that in these moments, it becomes sort of cinematic and you're seeing it and then you can't stop because she's enjamming so forcefully. And then she's doing like on a couple stanzas down, she has rusting 
Golan, you know, right in the beginning of the line. So she's stopping and going, and you're stopping and going, and you're in the middle of the field, and then there's the iron circle, and you see exactly, as you said, that beautiful verb, herding the grass. And then she goes again, and she leaps across the white space to another stanza, again, and the hedges failed in Hawthorn, again. It's really marvelous what she did. Just brilliant. Well, in our May 23rd, 2022 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Landscape with Double Bow, which we'll hear you read momentarily. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about the poem beforehand? Anything listeners might want to know? Well, the poem is about another artist, a woman named Frances Marie Ritti, who's a cellist, and she lives in Amsterdam, and we met in Italy at an artist residency. And we are actually, it is the afternoon in the middle of this poem, and we were picking grapes. Sounds perfect. Here's Diane Mehta reading her poem, Landscape with Double Bow. Landscape with Double Bow. Rondeau is what you really want. Solo and refrain. We and each the musical improvisation of the operatic day. Sonic scavenging and comedic jigging inside some becket of one another. Oh, wouldn't it be grand to be a whole note dragged across the bridge of your singular sound-expanding double bow. To be orchestral. To be drunk. To drink the velvet sun from the arbor trellis. Fruit of purple grapes we plucked, bunches of dolce to color our throats, and that improvised word-spun truth. I, terrified, say I can't derive on cue death, light, blueprints that fit the choral codes of what music thinks writing is about. We twisted grape notes so easily off their stems, screw of death in cupped hands. We follow seductions of light. You move above and underneath the strings in sea strokes. One bow was not enough to match the warmth two bows create. So you invented ways to get more harmony, upper bow and under bow, independent but close, staccato and legato, legato and staccato, to choose a way to hear the world and harvest sound in it. Curve of bow, curve of earth, curves your eyes interpret as ultraviolet, Still you want more color, more sound to harvest, more distortion. Pale blue resonators you sculpted in local clay. Land in sky blue above the land distort the sound you widened already. You are looking for a vibration lower than what the lowest string is tuned to pitched so low your ear can't find it. Imagination, lore, 
solo of magma, baritone of fantasia. I cannot rogue my syllables and improvise around temptation ears like yours, but love the glut, the secret, the grand distortions of your polyphonic heart, which believes in ghost tones. What is true? Grapes chandelier from the arbor and ripen on the tongue. We jammed the grapes inside a bowl so plentiful and ate their tiny hearts at lunch. That was Landscape with Double Bow by Diane Mehta. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Terrific to hear you read that. And... um such musicality, not surprising perhaps, but um, I love also these moments where you break through it, and I, I notice it especially at the end, where the phrasing, which throughout the poem I would say is quite long and, and lush and willing to say it all in a way, staccato and legato, legato and staccato, to choose a way to hear the world and harvest sound in it, then gets broken up by when you say, what is true? You know, and, and I love that kind of question, which to some might come out of nowhere, but by the end of this poem, I feel like it it's asking what is true in the sense of what is true and what's false, but it's also asking what is true as in what is accurate, like how, a true note, a note that sounds exactly right. How did you think about that question? And did this musicality come first? Were you trying to evoke the sounds? Or how did the writing impact these moments of lushness and then the end, which I want to get to more in a moment. I feel like she sucked the music out of me. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I tend to be a rhythmic or musical poet, but really I've learned so much from other artists and especially musicians in the last few years, and her especially, because she is, um, she's masterful. She's thrilling to talk to and listen to, but she never talks down to people, so I can ask all my dumb questions, (laughs) and I get very precise answers about tiny little things. And it's those tiny little things, that sound that she's chasing, that's thrilling. So as I thought of her, there's a kind of rhythm to our relationship, to our conversations, to the way we laugh. And Mm. I was also, because of her and a few other musicians at the residency, I was listening to a lot of new music, uh, new classical, and it was Stranger and lyrical in surprising ways, so I just felt revved and amped all the time, and sometimes a poem would come out of those rhythms and those moments of what is true. If you notice, I mentioned distortion. I'm doing a lot of repetition here, too, but I mentioned the word distortion, I think, three three or four times in different 
distortion, distort, and distortions. And it was a kind of way, as I got deeper into the poem, to to have a few moments that didn't match rhythmically and that were sort of distorted in that there isn't, they're not so lyrical. And yeah. and that that chasing that note, I don't know what is true. I don't know what is, is exactly right. I know what this rhythm is, and I know this is outside it. Well, I feel like the rhythm, too, is um, takes us into the realm of philosophy in many ways. It's thinking about the sounds as well as making them, which I think is beautiful. And this moment that strikes me over and over, blueprints that fit the choral codes of what music thinks break writing is about. And that's one of the moments, another one of sort of enjambment of breaking up the rhythm or stopping it a little bit. And what do you think music thinks <laughs> writing is about? It's a, it's a big question, right? So I'm not <laughs> sure what music thinks. What's, what's amazing is I don't think that music knows exactly what it's thinking because like Frances, there's so many musicians who are chasing something, but she was very actively chasing this and tuning. Um, mm. She wants to, to tune the string so low that there is some sort of vibration in the air that she knows is there. I think by now she says it is there, but I'm chasing a certain sound that can't be heard, but I hear it. I hear it when I'm on stage and when Mm -hmm. I'm playing and other people can't hear it. She called it a ghost tone, but she says it's there. Sure. And her ears are special. They're all, their ear training is, has taught me a lot because they hear things in a different way. Well, I've been listening a lot of Coltrane lately uh, and uh, Love Supreme. And he, of course, is chasing uh, a sound in that composition as well. And I think we all are in some way. And that's one of the questions I have about the poem, you know, echoing the Bolin we just read, which is to say, is this an Ars Poetica then? Is it a poem thinking about uh, what writing is about? It definitely is. I, I chose her poem in part because it was a good conversation to have with my poem, which was a conversation with Francis in conversation with a sound. So yeah. I thought there are so many connections here between dialogue and the prayer and the sound and chasing sound and having conversations. And what's most important to me in the end is something just very frank and emotional, which is the conversation, the friendship that creates mm-hmm. the conversation and welcomes you into their art as Yvonne Boland is welcoming us in, um, not without some hesitation, but welcoming us into her letter. And I'm trying to welcome Frances into the way I write and vice versa. Part of what she wanted was an improvisation. So musicians improvise all the time and they don't think anything of it. This is what they do. So she said, while we were in Italy, let's do an improvisation. I said, oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. And she said, it'll be grand. It'll be fine. You can just take some Beckett or something. That's why Beckett is in here. Take some Beckett and mix it up. And so I started walking and trying to do that. And then I just had, I said, no, I can't do this. I, I, I have to work. I polish. I do things in one way. But what's amazing about reading this poem now is I am finally improvising. So I'm working... <laughs> I'm working with some musicians, and over time, thinking about voice and trying to figure out how do you weave poetry and music together rather than taking a poem and setting it to music, which is what most people do, how do I become a musician and work with the musician without being a musician? So I've been trying to do that. That art of improvisation, you know, people think it is spontaneous when it really takes a lot of practice. 
It's not spontaneous, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm curious about a few moments, um, the beginning and the end, let's say. And in the beginning, you say Rondo is what you really want. And there's that great ambiguity that I think we see different versions of in a band's poem where it says the they and the we, and here we have the you and then this I that appears really at the end. And I love that moment, at least at the beginning, when the you could be the self what the writer might want, say, then quickly followed by we and each. But that we there, too, the operatic day, it feels like it's about not just this one musician, but about going through one's life. Uh, It's a landscape, after all, which, you know, feels painterly. Uh, And I wonder about that painterly quality, too, how the imagery for you uh, you know, was it a building up of the paint or was it a scraping away of the canvas? How, how did that painterly quality come about? I think it came about very slowly and sometimes painfully. It is very much a painterly beginning in that I was trying to figure out how to create something new and how to understand someone else's vocabulary in a different landscape entirely. So not only the landscape of Italy, but the landscape of someone else's mind, someone else's ears, and it was so different that I can't begin to describe it. There's this ever-expanding sense of possibility, and it almost feels to me that all this around music and how it fits into my life, at least, is almost a new genre. Well, in the the end, it has that, I mean, it kind of... um... I'm not sure I believe the speaker when they say, I cannot rogue my syllables (laughs) and improvise around temptation. I mean, as you say, the poem is kind of um, trying to do exactly that. But I love the very end, uh, the last two, three lines, grapes chandelier from the arbor and ripen on the tongue. We jam the grapes inside a bowl, which is um, a, a great image, so plentiful, and ate their tiny hearts at lunch. And ending with that lunch, I think, is really... Smart. It could, you know, when you're doing something so improvisational, you know, you have to come back to the original moment. You can't just go so far off that it ends there. I feel like it has to go back to the melody. Um, How do you hear that melody at the end, this lunch, a great moment, an everyday occurrence made in this poem, I think, grand and beautiful? I really worked hard on the rhythm, I have to say. So <laughs> I loved the way you read bowl because you lowered your voice and it got sort of like, I'm a killer. I killed all these grapes, <laughs> which is exactly <laughs> what we did. We killed all yeah, these grapes. Sure. And then we gave them to everyone, bloody and marvelous. And um, right. I liked also the way that once you got to grapes and the bowl and I shifted away from the music and what she was doing, I have a lot of monosyllables here, so we ate their tiny hearts at lunch, and it moves fast. Right, right, And so then I can say it in a completely different way than I say all the other things of longing and uncertainty and, oh, I cannot rogue my syllables, I cannot do all these things. Well, I'm trying to do all these things, but here I ate their tiny hearts at lunch. (laughs) That's right. I, I wonder about your forthcoming collection, Tiny Extravaganzas. Does it have work that echoes this in some way? It has almost entirely poems about art and other artists, and this poem about music, and I talk about a William de Kooning painting at MoMA, and I often have a musical lexicon 
I wasn't completely aware of this, but the flautist that I'm collaborating with was looking through my poems and he said, you know, you use a musical lexicon to write about art and other things, but you're actually not writing about music while you're trying to be rhythmic. And I thought, my goodness, you guys are brilliant. So I'm often using a musical lexicon because I was around all these musicians and I thought this is a good way to express what I'm trying to do about art while also talking about your art. So it's about other people. I didn't want it to be about me. And is that the extravaganzas you mentioned, tiny or, or not? Yes. <laughs> and poems are also these tiny things, but they're so important in the world. But you have a long line uh, in this poem and maybe others. Uh, is that conscious too? This poem, and increasingly a lot of the poems I'm writing, are in longer stanzas than I, I used to write. And when I was much younger... I wrote in tercets, almost entirely in tercets for many, many years. I can't stand sure. writing in tercets anymore. I think they're I'd, pretty addictive, yeah. though. Let's <laughs> let's be honest. Let's let's have a tercet. You can keep confession. going and going and going, and they they have a good function. They're almost a device. But I wanted to get bigger because the sound gets bigger, and I'm trying to get my mind to expand. So my lines are getting a little longer, and I'm trying to keep them in stanzas that are sort of four to six lines. There's a lot of six-line stanzas now, and sometimes I rhyme and sometimes I don't, or I do a lot of internal rhyme, and I'm trying to repeat more and use different words in different ways while still repeating and keep it rhythmic. And so I've found that this longer line and thicker stanza gives me more leeway to do stuff in between. Right, right. Well, I love how you put it. It's kind of a double bow of your tercets in a way. You're, mm-hmm. you're using two of them at a time somehow. Right. But I also think there's a kind of bow that occurred to me um, that the poem has that prayer-like quality. Were you thinking of that? And this kind of end almost has a communion feel if you're in that tradition. If I think of a prayer as a phrase or an an act of love, then yes, because I'm writing in second person and this poem to my friend is an apostrophe, so I'm writing it directly to her in the way that an apostrophe used to be, like a direct address used to be, a love poem to someone. And I'm saying, I love you. In the same way, Yvonne Boland is saying to Ireland, for everyone, do you still love us? Are you still there? Um, so, so, yes. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Uh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Landscape with Double Bow by Diane Mehta, as well as Evan Bullen's The Lost Art of Letter Writing, can be found on NewYorker.com. Evan Bullen's last book was The Historians. Diane Mehta's forthcoming collection is Tiny Extravaganzas. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman.
Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.